You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm your host, Vicky Maguire. I'm a coach. I work in schools with teachers and leaders to help them to improve their well-being. Welcome to this episode in which I have an absolutely brilliant interview with Dame Alison Peacock. I can't tell you how delighted I am that she agreed to come on the show and you are going to learn so much from her. She is absolutely amazing. I cannot believe the amazing things that this woman has done and just how humble she is. But there is just so much to learn from her. I have to say again, it's a long interview. I was enjoying talking to her so much that I didn't even notice the time passing. So I am absolutely certain you are really going to enjoy this interview today. So here it is, Dame Alison Peacock. Enjoy the interview. Dame Alison Peacock, I am honoured to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you very much for asking me. I'm really pleased to talk to you today. (laughs) I'm really pleased that you joined us. So um, can you start by just giving the listeners a little bit of information about who you are and what you do and how you've ended up doing what you do now? Okay, so uh, I run the Chartered College of Teaching, which is the new professional body for all teachers. Uh, charitable body. I've been doing that since January 2017 and prior to that I was a head teacher and a researcher, also a mother of two daughters. Um, I've been a teacher all my career and I'm absolutely passionate about giving teachers the best possible chance of being successful learners so that they can enable their youngsters, their pupils to be successful learners too. That was an amazingly brief uh, potted history of what has really actually been an extremely varied and exceptional career in education. Can you tell us what's been your favourite role out of all the things that you've done? What's been the best bit? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, I've loved all of it. So I would say at the moment my favourite role is being CEO of the Chartered College because that's what I'm doing right now. Um, But if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said I would never leave primary headship because that's definitely where it was at. And if you'd asked me a bit before that, I'd have said working in the advisory service or working in a secondary school. Um, So every time I've had a job, I've given heart and soul to it and I've loved it. Um, Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. That's not to say that it's all been easy. There have been times when it's been really, really hard and times when it's been frustrating uh, but they've always been outweighed by the good bits of any role that I've had I think yeah definitely. I think the important thing is having a passion for what you do and it's clear that you are very passionate about education and that you've really loved and felt that sense of purpose in all the roles that you've done and one of the things that I think is really important when we talk about well-being in schools which obviously we talk about often on the podcast having a purpose and and loving your job is really important and one of the things that I see in teaching an awful lot is people who become tired and exhausted and they lose they lose their passion for teaching and they lose the flame goes out and they lose what what it was that really drove them to be a teacher in the first place what do you think we can do for those teachers who have reached that point where they don't they're not feeling it anymore how can we support them to to get their mojo back so to speak yeah it's a really interesting question because I think what happens is that other things get in the way so it's not that you lose your passion for teaching or your passion for the job it's more that you are required perhaps to spend your time doing things other than the things that you know make the most difference and that then leads to a sense of frustration and 
helplessness really if you know it's a bit like um it's a bit like Rumpelstiltskin if you're told you've got to carry on marking these books until you can leave at the end of the day and that means that you don't have time for the phone call or you don't have time to go and watch a bit of the football match which one of your pupils is playing and you know it would make a massive difference to him if he saw you there those kinds of things are the things instinctively you know you want to do but if you've got to do something else because you're told you've got to that all gets in the way and it and too often I think the the workload uh, issue for teachers has it's, it's felt insurmountable. It's felt as though, uh, I mean, the job's impossible anyway. Let's just get this sorted out yeah. before we go any further. The job is totally impossible. It's okay if it's impossible on your terms. If it's impossible on, on the terms of someone else telling you what you've got to do, it becomes not only impossible, it becomes untenable. And that then is a real issue. So I think the whole um, worry about... Um, burnout, the worry about the high attrition rates of teachers leaving the profession is to do with the fact that the job they thought they were coming into becomes something that looks nothing like that job. It becomes something that's about ticking boxes, fulfilling admin requirements, proving that you've done everything that you need to do as opposed to doing everything you need to do. Um, and that feels exhausting and then on top of that if you if you find you get a situation where you maybe got a parent or someone who is unhappy with something that's gone on during the day that can feel like the last straw because for that parent their child is the only thing and the main thing and they can only see that for you that could be the last straw in terms of your patience or your capacity to keep on giving because this it's such a demanding role you're constantly having to give out to others as a teacher constantly so it's yeah. it's interesting that you that you say when someone else is telling you what to do because one of the things that I think has become abundantly clear from doing this podcast is the idea of well-being being very closely linked to autonomy and mastery and I think the idea that as teachers also we have a passion for working with children but we are intellectuals we are people who have a love and a passion for our in secondary schools for our subject but I think in primary schools that passion and that love for learning and the craft of being being a teacher and I really love the chartered college because I think it it gives support to teachers to gain back some of that autonomy to to go somewhere and find things that can help them to develop as a professional so can you tell us about the the chartered college and how how it supports teachers in that so i suppose journey towards autonomy and mastery of the craft yes there's so much that i could tell you i mean essentially the reason i left headship which was the job that i loved previously to come to this was because i could see the potential for what could happen if colleagues were able to support each other through collaboration through sharing their practice because you know as a teacher typically you're in your own classroom you teach your classes you don't see what happens even next door because of course you don't because you're already teaching and the the reality of that is it can be a very isolating job yeah. And then maybe you become um, a leader or a head teacher. And I certainly remember when I did my NPQH, <laughs> I can remember the guy who was doing the training on this particular day saying, of course, you know, head teachers, um, very, very lonely job. And I just remember thinking, well, I don't want to do this then. I don't want to be lonely. I, I, don't, I don't want to be on my own because I'm always someone that, that loves to learn from others, loves to listen, loves to share. And... The Chartered College is all about that. The Chartered College, if you like, is, is, is the sort of the home of professional learning, in my view. That's where we want to get to, where every teacher sees themselves as a lifelong learner, not in a deficit model, not because they feel like, well, I need to do this because otherwise I won't be good enough, but because they're excited to constantly learn and to find out and to hear stories of practice. But it's not just the intuitive role of being a teacher which is that sort of charismatic I can get on with my youngsters we can have a, a really good learning opportunity together it's also as you say it's that intellectual endeavor the combination of the two phrenesis is really a, a, a vital part of what the Chartered College is about it's about bringing those two um, twin tracks together the research the theory alongside 
the actual practice that's born by intuition, the two of those together take you to uh, the role of becoming an expert teacher. And if you're an expert teacher, then you also understand that learning is not just for children, learning is for everybody. So then you, you're much in a much better place to help your colleagues to develop their practice and to learn, you get satisfaction from that. So for me at the Chartered College, I mean, honestly, at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, well, what are we going to do? You know, all these schools, nobody's in school, nobody knows what to do, everybody's worried. I, I better start encouraging people. And so that was why um, I started on Twitter and I've been doing it for a year now. Each morning I sort of wake up and think, what can I say today to make people feel a bit better? And sometimes it will make people feel better and sometimes they'll ignore it, but I try. And that's what I do as a head teacher. <laughs> I think people have really appreciated those those words of, of support and you you constantly champion teachers don't you and you know the fantastic work they're currently doing in you know completely challenging circumstances we've never experienced anything I think I left at just the right time actually I uh, I left in August last year so I, you know I'm totally in awe of the way that teachers have so quickly adapted to a totally different way of working however I, I just why is it that there isn't as much respect for teachers and the teaching profession in this country as there should be? And I've just, I, I'm an online tutor for MPQSL and one of the modules is about looking at education systems in other countries. And, you know, it's really clear that in countries like Finland and Singapore, there's a, there's a huge amount of respect for the teaching profession. So what can we do to address this? Because I think that's one of, if, we could address that, that that would support teachers' well-being as well, wouldn't it? Completely agree with you. So I've just, this afternoon, I've been talking to a journalist from the FT, and I've been talking about um, the way in which the profession has responded um, in such an agile manner at scale. I mean, half a million teachers just in this country. It's amazing, and, isn't it? It is amazing. And, yeah. and, the, and actually, when you look back at the timeline of the pandemic, Okay, schools closed and it was terrifying and nobody knew what was happening, but it was also very quickly the Easter holidays. Before long, many children were back in schools in June, you know, and they've been in school all through the autumn term. So when yeah. we have the sort of doom mongers talking about the lost generation, you know, the COVID generation, well, actually, um, they've been in school for quite a lot of the pandemic and their teachers have been doing an amazing job, certainly since Christmas. I mean, the... the um, the way in which teachers have adapted to using online teaching, I think, has surprised everybody. So there is something about how do we raise the status of the profession. And for me, this is, again, links back to what I was saying before. I think it is about being able to not only describe what you're doing, but why. Why are you making the decisions you're making? What's the evidence you're drawing upon? What are the research studies that have been done in this field that enable you to know that you're making a good decision in planning your lessons in this particular way or structuring your revision in this particular way? You know, what goes beyond just what's always been done and is related to what the research tells us? And I think this is where the Chartered College has a really strong part to play in building the status of the teaching profession. Everything is about enabling you to be more confident but not just out of arrogance confident informed by big ideas that underpin the actions that you take in the classroom and the chartered college is there all the way through teachers careers to enable that to happen of course we knew uh, there will be many people potentially listening to this who haven't actually engaged with the chartered college yet but they will after this podcast oh of they they absolutely will i i sell the chartered <laughs> college to to everybody who i come in contact with um the value for money wise it's absolutely amazing i think i pay three pounds 75 a month and yeah. just the mag just the the magazine the impact magazine that i get is worth probably double at least double that so it's and and I think what what it's so interesting that you do is because there are so many research studies out there as a as a 
class teacher, you haven't got time to go and do all that research yourself. So to have it all there and to have the most pertinent and the, you know, the, the most reliable sources is really useful. Why do you think it's so important that our practice in schools is evidence informed? And can you just explain to people what evidence informed means as opposed to other types of research? It's quite, it's quite difficult in in education and teaching, isn't it, to, to get that reliability from, from the research that's undertaken? So firstly, um, I am a realist and I recognise how busy teachers are. In fact, we were talking about workload earlier on. So I'm not expecting teachers to conduct their own research study. I'm not expecting teachers to be researchers. But where there are studies that are carried out that relate directly to your practice as a teacher, why wouldn't you want to be informed about what the outcomes are? So we've recently, as a sort of precursor to a chartered status, we've recently designed an online module called um, Evidence-Informed Practice. And um, colleagues are able to join this to study, to find out what does the latest um, thinking around uh, things like cognitive science, what's the latest learning about this that they can do online and really bring their knowledge up to date. Now, the reason this is important is because if you think about the fact that, you know, I trained to teach a gazillion years ago, I could still very well be teaching in a classroom. I certainly could very well still be a head teacher. If I didn't, um, if I wasn't interested, if I hadn't bothered to find out about all of the latest thinking around how the brain develops, for example, how young people learn most effectively, how they recall information effectively, in a way, I'm selling my students short because I may know my subject really well, but if I've missed out on understanding how to ensure that youngsters can retain that knowledge, that, that feels remiss to me. Also, in terms of the, the vast numbers of youngsters that we work with, I can remember several times, several key points in my career where I encountered a youngster in my classroom and thought, I don't actually know how to help you learn. I don't understand why you don't understand if you see what I'm saying yeah. or maybe with a parent who might who might have come to me and said you know Mrs Peacock can you help me with this my child is doing this at home what does this mean and actually all I could use was my best intuition my best knowledge of children but combine that with actually having an, somewhere where I could go and look it up where I could actually go and find out what's been written about it so the child that refuses to speak for example you know, what might be the reasons behind that? What else might a, a community do? Those kinds of situations emerge all the time in our classrooms. And although intuition gets you a long way, uh, it's not, I don't think it's enough. And so this is, this is not about finding things that are wrong with teachers. This is about saying the job is very, very complex. It's incredibly complex, which is why it's fascinating. But also, there are lots of things that we can learn that can help us do our job even more effectively. And if you've got a resource, so when you join the Chartered College, there's a, a research database, which is the same database that you would join if you were doing a master's degree or a PhD. So you're able to access that database as a member of the Chartered College. Now, for the first time, teachers have been able to do that. Previously, they have not been able to do that. But yeah. So for £3.75 a month, or even less if you're a new teacher um you have that at your fingertips plus the journal plus the seminar yeah. everything the, else there were so many things so many papers that i would have loved to have re read that I, like if you'd find them on the internet and think oh that looks brilliant you'd get to read the foreword and then yeah. it would be closed and say right you have to join whatever it is and pay x x amount to do it so it's brilliant that it's there at your fingertips isn't it it is but i also know that I mean, that database is, is vast. So what we've done is we have researchers who work for us and they produce what they call compact guides. So for example, they will synthesize what's the, the sort of top kind of 10 things that, <clears throat> excuse me, that has been um, learned about, I don't know, developing dialogue, developing speech, um, learning to read, assessment, you know, these kinds of things. And they produce those compact guides as a way of meaning that we understand you're busy. We understand you can't, endlessly search for information however fascinating that may be so we try to optimize what we're offering all the time and we're very keen to hear from people you know when they they might have a particular interest um, that they would like us to um 
to synthesize for them. Uh, it, it's our job. That's what we're trying to do. And it's endlessly important, I think. And you're right. It's about making it accessible for teachers and making it easy. I mean, one of, one of the things that I think I trained to teach in 1997, and since then I've always wanted to improve my practice and find out more and learn about how the brain works or how children learn to read and all those things. When I when I trained to teach I didn't learn anything about and I'm not even sure what exactly I learned when I was when I was training I definitely didn't learn about how children learn I definitely didn't learn about how a curriculum should be planned and structured so it suits the way that children learn and the way that they develop and progression and things like that and so how how do you think we can encourage teachers to take more of an interest in their own development I think teachers are interested you know I think when you talk about how do we make things better for teachers I think it's about having the space within your organization where people want to hear what you say having that agency that if you read something that's interesting that when you go into school someone wants to listen if you have an idea that someone wants to hear it or if you're the leader you feel confident enough that this is an idea that's worth exploring further with your team and it's worth um, finding out more about. I think the worst kind of scenario that we can have, and this does exist in some of our schools unfortunately, is that kind of environment where everything's sort of tied down, everything's sorted, everything's known, you can't suggest anything new because the development plan's been written for three years in advance. And so, so it doesn't matter that you've understood, you know, you're under some, just understood something new because there's no space for it. I think it's really important that teaching is understood as an intellectual endeavor. And as such, we need spaces to stop, to think, to um, inquire, to collaborate, to question. Everything should always be open to question. The minute we think we're certain about something, it's a worry, you know, because this is about humans. It's about young humans and how they are learning. And it's, it's an endless quest to say, well, what can we do to make that? optimal it, you know it, I, I don't think even however brilliant you could have the charter college there for 50 years there would be even more questions at the end of that 50 years than there are now but that would be a great thing because it would be about constantly seeking to say well what else might we do um what else can we do and and listening to other colleagues I think this is really fundamental when I took over as a head teacher of a school that was in special measures the first thing I did was to put up a big notice to say, no, this is a listening school. Because it wasn't about me going in as a new head teacher, particularly as a woman going in saying, I've got all the answers. It was about saying, we can find all the answers together. And I think that's, that's, that's so important, isn't it? Someone yeah. had said something on Twitter the other day about, you know, what do you do when staff keep coming to you and asking you questions and they want the answers? And I think my, my response was support them to find the answers out for themselves, help them to help them to work it out. I think it's really important based on what you were just saying as well, that leaders prioritise creating that space for staff. I spoke to um, a head teacher called Ben Solly last week, and one of the things that he talked about is stripping away all of the nonsense, all of the things that we do in teaching or we expect teachers to do that actually don't have any impact on the learning and the progress of children. And as leaders, I also think that we need to be role models of learning and finding things out and and. and and, you know, looking for what's the late, what's the latest evidence telling us and how can we apply that? And, and then giving staff in your schools time to go away and, and have a go and allowing them to take risks as well and allowing your staff to make mistakes. If it goes wrong, it doesn't matter. It's about what you learn from it and how you progress from that and how you make a difference moving forward. I think that I think you're right. I think the job of a leader is to help colleagues to explore new things, but I think it's also to help them not experience failure. So it's to help them um, try new things, but to almost kind of metaphorically put your arms around them as they do it, so that they find success in what they're what they're starting out to do. It's it's I know it's it's kind of trendy to talk about. It's good to make mistakes. Actually, it's horrible when you make a mistake, isn't it? Yeah. It feels horrible. 
I hate it if I make a mistake because I always feel like I've let myself down. It doesn't mean that I won't try again because I'm just that kind of learner. I, I constantly want to improve. But I think we have to be careful as leaders to make sure that we don't we don't allow our teachers to fall into too much of a trap. You know, we want them to be successful. We want them to try something new and we want it to work. So if I give you an example from when I was um, when I was a head teacher. Before we hear Dame Allison's example, I just want to tell you a little bit about our partner, headteacherchat.com. Headteacherchat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of headteacherchat is to support headteachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. So there was uh, there was a guy on my staff who um, came to me and he said, "Oh, the children in my year four class find it really difficult. They haven't got any ideas about writing." Okay. Now I knew these children when they were in year three with a very different teacher, and they loved writing. So straight away. You have a choice here, don't you? You either sort of go down the track of saying, hmm, you don't know how to inspire these children. What kind of teacher are you? Or you say, well, that's really interesting. What might we find together that could really inspire your children to want to write? And then, you, want, you know, it's not about making the teacher feel bad. It's about giving the teacher a chance to learn what might be possible. So in what we actually did in this scenario was that teacher was friends with the teacher in year six. They got on really well. They were both men as it worked out. And actually they planned something together. The teacher in year six was a, was a, he's a head teacher now. He was a, one of these fantastic teachers that, you know, can teach everything. And together they planned something. So the year fours and the year sixes got, in, got involved in writing workshops. The year six teacher effectively was modeling to the year four teacher what might be possible to do. The children loved it because they were getting to work in mixed age groups and it was a good kind of, vibe being with these two male teachers and it was all fun and whatever else but fundamentally the teachers were learning from each other so different from the model that says okay I'm going to send someone into your classroom I'm going to observe what you're doing I'm going to tell you where you're going wrong then I'm going to send someone else that you can go and watch him teach you can go and see that teacher in year six you can see how to do it properly then I want to come back and monitor you and see what you've done can you just see I mean it's just such a different way of working yeah. and I believe there's something quite female, which I'm absolutely applauding here. There's a different style of leadership that is about enabling others as opposed to blaming others. It's about believing in people. And it's not about, <laughs> it's not about being all macho and having the answers or having to tell everybody else you've got the answers. It's about how you help other people, almost like a sort of coaching conversation, how you help people find they actually had the answer themselves all along. And how much more empowering is it if you are enabled to find that answer for yourself as opposed to feeling that you've got to follow someone else's rules? It's, it's interesting, that, isn't it? Because we, we do exist in an you know high-stakes accountability system and people have... It, it just It's become the norm to do the observe someone make a judgment and and often in schools where they say oh we've taken the numbers away there's still an element of judgment because there are long lists of these teachers need to be doing these things these things these things tick 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 and if they're if they're doing them great we'll observe them again in x number of months or weeks or whatever and if they're not then this is the process that you have to follow and go down that route what's your What's your opinion on, on those sorts of systems and how can schools start to move away from that? I'm assuming that you, that you think schools should move away from that in that question. Answer. Well, I, I, I mean, 
I'm sure that when anybody working for me would never say that it was a pushover working for Alison. So I think that I might have in my head a very benign view of school leadership, which is as I've described, but there was also a really kind of strong expectation underlying that. So to, just to continue that example, if I can, just for a moment that I was mm -hmm. just talking about, um, I went to see the year fours after they'd been involved in the workshop with the year six children. And they were all excited because they were going to be writing a play. And I said to them, oh, it's, this is brilliant to hear. And the next morning in the register, when I knew they were going to be starting this writing, I, I wrote a letter to the class, which the teacher read out, which was from me saying, I'm really excited to read your writing today. I'm really excited about you know, what you're going to be doing. They were focusing on Robin Hood. Um, so there's kind of an expectation here that this isn't just about you go and have a nice time with your teacher mate and it's all gonna be fine. There's also something the children knew that I was really interested to see what was happening. The teacher knew, but it was all the time it was in a supportive vein. And I think there's more than one way of um, raising expectations and you know you can go down that model of holding people to account frankly if I could eradicate those words in that order from the English language I would because I think that that provides one model of improvement the other model of improvement which is far more sustainable it strikes me is about enabling people to constantly seek to do their best and to find ways of improving their practice and if you can create that kind of culture within your organization of you know, that sort of restlessness that says, and we could try this next. <laughs> you know, it's not about deficit. It's not about feeling, oh, she's going to find me out. But there is still an edge to it, which is, um, you know, we want to see that this is going to work. So people don't always understand, I, I guess, when I talk about this, they sort of think, oh, this is just let everybody do anything, all should have prizes. But it's not really. It's about... Um, tapping into that energy that happens when people are inspired to think I could try this today and it's the same thing you know as a teacher um, it's about enabling children to surprise you with what they're capable of and if you have a classroom where it's possible to say something that that means that your teacher thinks wow and I didn't realize you could contribute that that's that's brilliant isn't it compared with a classroom where nobody's going to offer because they know they just have to be quiet until they're asked it's a, it's it's creating that sense of I don't know it feels like there's a a positivity that you know we can do things and we can improve Dylan Williams says Dylan Williams says doesn't he that um, teachers have you know they have to improve not because they're not good enough but because they can be even better and it's about creating that even with the children that creating that environment in which everybody's striving to be even even better um the the learning without limits work um that you've done is about building that sort of learning environment isn't it um and when i read about it it says that it it was inclusive humane and enabling for everybody and those three elements for me should be what all schools are striving to create in their school school cultures so how can school leaders begin to do this in their schools to create that I think there's a sense of support and challenge isn't there that you are challenged to be your best but in order to do it the support is there that underpins it so how do how do leaders in schools start that work to create that culture and it's not something that you can just achieve in a few months is it it's it's a sustained project that you have to be committed to I think it's a, it's about establishing a professional learning culture and and you know if the values of your school are about trust and respect then that that carries all the way through school it's not just the youngsters it's everybody um, it's all staff not just teaching staff um, and it's about, it's about an energy around um, inquiry, if you like. So I think one of the things that happened when I was leading that school was that I, I would engage in coaching conversations, not just me, but everybody in the school um, had a mentor. Um, there was an expectation, if you like, that we would talk about, not about the teacher, interestingly, but we would talk about how we would be able to provide learning that could find a way through for individual children. Now, teachers are endlessly fascinated about how they do that. 
it's very different if you're talking a conversation that's about um, how you improve your practice feels exposing and worrying and it feels like you're constantly whatever you're doing is never going to be good enough whereas a conversation that's about how might we help Jimmy to concentrate for longer on the carpet for example um, is, is far more enabling and if it's not about if it's not about blaming the teacher if it's about saying how can we find a way through that would help this youngster to be able to concentrate further or um, challenge himself more in mathematics or engage more in this particular activity what might we all do together that feels like it's a collective problem solving activities which is what you know um, research lesson study is based on we had a, a period in time when we had a, an offset inspection um, we'd already become an outstanding school but they came back they wanted to do a full inspection and it was at the time when um, Michael Wilshaw was HMCI and he was all about um, lesson observations and head teachers must have records of lesson observations with all their staff and all this kind of thing. And I'd got a research lesson study file, which was packed full of um, lesson study, which is where you have uh, three teachers usually working together, identifying a shared problem and then taking it in turns to teach and identify what's going on within the classroom, being an extra pair of eyes, that kind of thing, and then writing it up. So when I found out we'd got this inspection, I just changed the title on the folder from <laughs> research lesson study to monitoring. Um, and it was fine, you know, there we are. And I could, and the thing was crucial uh, was I could actually talk about what was going on in the school. I could, I and other leaders in the school and other teachers in the school actually could all talk about the process of how everybody was trying to improve each other's practice, which is after all, that is what monitoring is aiming to do. It's just not, it's not a kind of top down, I'm blaming you because I'm bigger than you are type approach. It's a much more of a collective, collaborative, how do we improve what's going on for the child, not the teacher's performance, but the child's capacity to learn. That's what's fun. Yeah, the word monitoring, uh, I suppose it has a little bit of a, it, I suppose it makes you feel like you're being watched, that there's a sense of, of being watched, <laughs> isn't there? And, judgment. It, and then, you know, until recently, the teachers would be saying, well, what, what grade would I have got? No. So yeah. it, it's a judgment. And of course, it's always going to be inexact. And that's where the work of Professor Coe was just really brilliant, you know, when he just really challenged the veracity of any of those judgments. Mm. And then people sort of went, oh. I, I remember when I'd been observed often thinking, well, that could have been, dis it, could, it could have been judged outstanding, but equally it could have been judged requires improvement. It would depend on what someone had seen in the lesson. It, it was, it was never, I was never, never really had a conversation about the actual process that I'd gone through and why I'd made certain choices and how I might have done different things and, and had an opportunity to have that type of conversation, um, which I think is very important if, if teachers are going to improve their practice. We had a, a visit into school from a Japanese professor who had spent his life focusing on lesson study. And he went and sat in the year six classroom and he'd got his camera and he was there for about half an hour. And then the teacher came out with him and we came into my office and on his camera, he'd got uh, sort of images of the children and he was saying, and he'd written notes and he was saying, so this boy here, when you were saying this, this is what he was doing. And he just talked about the children in the class and how they were responding to what was being taught or the tasks that had been set and how they were engaging with it in a way that the teacher could never have seen from her position where she was in the classroom. So he wasn't critiquing her lesson at all, actually, but he was critiquing the learning that was taking place because of the teaching that was going on in her lesson. Now, that was such an empowering uh, informative, insightful half an hour that we then spent with him looking at these children that we thought we knew very well and he'd only come in that day so he didn't know them. He was just watching as an outsider and then sharing what he had seen. Now it strikes me that's a far more uh, useful um, my dog. <laughs> far more useful um, way of looking than uh, coming in and saying, I like the way you did this, could they spend less time on the carpet and should you have spent more time getting them to write this down? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And if you can create an environment in which people 
are supporting each other in that way, then it it all it, it all helps to, to get your teachers flourishing, doesn't it? And it it adds to the sense of well-being in your school. One of the things that that I find interesting is I wonder whether you have any thoughts on this and why it's taken so long for well-being to become a focus in schools why has it taken us so long to get to get round to making this a focal point <laughs> well there's several things around this i mean i think the first thing is that if you know within your organization that you really matter that you are noticed and that you make a difference that is huge whether you're a child, whether you, um, I don't know, are the road crossing patrol, whoever you are, whatever your role is, if you know that you matter, that you are noticed, then you're an important part of that organisation. If you, on the other hand, feel as though people are oblivious to you and whatever you do, however hard you work, no one really seems to take any notice. And if they do notice, they haven't got time to talk to you and they haven't got time to care about what's going on then that's demoralizing in the extreme. And I think too often what happens is that in the name of trying to move the school forward, you know, it's kind of like this relentless sort of machine that everybody's just got to get on it and keep on going. Actually, of course, we've all fallen off, haven't we? Because everything's stopped. <laughs> um, but, you know, that sense of, of feeling you haven't got a voice, you haven't been noticed, you don't matter what you think isn't understood, that I think is at the heart of this. And then you start to get things going on, which mean that people say, oh, well, we must do something to make people feel better. So instead of looking at the fundamental cause, they try and put a sticking plaster on. So I don't know, flowers in the staff room when you can go home half an hour early once every six weeks or something. You know, those aren't things that are really going to make a difference. They might be appreciated, but the things that will really make a difference about being part of a culture where you belong and you know that you belong and you're understood and you're recognized for that. Uh, so I think the, the well-being agenda has, co has come about because the culture has been so wrong in so many organizations. It's been so driven by proving that you're doing everything. But frankly, people have just been falling off the edge because they just haven't been able to cope with it. You know, it's just too much. To me, that's, that's an indicator of something else that's wrong. Um, so I think the well-being agenda has come to the fore just because it's had to, rather than genuinely caring about teachers. It's been about, oh, well, I must do something to make things feel better so that we keep them. Well, yes, do something better, but let's do something further down the track, which is about making sure that teachers are valued in the first place. And then all those things like giving people space to go and um, study at home if that's the best way of using their time, great, because, the, because it's a culture of trust. So why wouldn't you take your PPA? Um, or maybe, you know, it's time with your teaching assistant and you go off somewhere where you're not going to be disturbed because you know that's optimal time for you to plan the week ahead. Great. It is about, I think it's about so much more than just putting a bunch of flowers in the staff room. <laughs> that just has come up in virtually every episode of the podcast. It's it's not. I, I always think as well, there's... Um, there's a there's a sense that with some things that you do you don't actually understand your staff because if you if you regularly put cakes and treats and things like that in the staff room I think you, you you're overlooking those people who have a, a problem with eating or are trying to lose weight or you know you say well let's do a well-being session down at the pub but you show that you don't understand your staff because if you've got staff who have had a drinking problem or you know staff who don't drink I think it, it shows up that you there's a lack of understanding of your staff to put on yoga sessions or meditation because you really show that you don't actually understand what individual members of staff need I mean everything comes down to knowing your organization you know the best teachers know their children the best head teachers know their colleagues and their children you know, the job is about relationships. It's about understanding. It's about understanding strengths. It's about supporting people before they fall. It's about building them up and giving them opportunities to be successful, as we've described, as opposed to monitoring them and judging them. You know, the whole, the job of being a school leader uh, is a tremendously um, <laughs> never-ending one. And of course, as a school leader, 
you know, you need support as well. So all the way through when I was a head teacher, I always had a coach. I, even when budgets were tight, I made sure I had a coach because if my well-being faltered, then I was in no position to be able to support everybody else. If I felt that I was isolated or not able to make collaborative decisions in the way that I like to do, then that was going to have a knock-on effect for everybody else. So looking after yourself is not just something that, you know, um, it's just something nice to say. It's really important. Um, it really is important because you cannot be in the in the best way to help everybody else if you yourself are feeling on the brink of tears. Now there are times, but I, probably only on the fingers of one hand that I can count of when I when I was upset in front of staff. Maybe I can remember one occasion when my mum was very ill. She had um, heart surgery, and I had arrived into school late because I'd, you know, been to see her. And I came in through the kitchens and the, the lady who was there, Angie, she was the sort of the lead cook. And she just sort of turned to me and just said to me, oh, good, you know, good morning, Alison, how are you? And just because she was kind. <laughs> yeah, don't be kind to me when I'm feeling like that. Yeah. And I remember bursting into floods of tears and she and straight away she kind of put her arm around me and said, oh, come on, come and sit down and talk to me. And I, now you wouldn't want someone who was doing that every week, but just occasionally, you know, it's all right to be human, isn't it? It's all right. And, you know, if yeah. something like that's going on in your life, then you would be there for other people. So it's not about it's not about behaving like a robot. I think it is about genuinely, authentically being there for people, asking them how they are, taking time to listen, not sort of asking them how they are and having walked off before they've even answered you. Now, if you can be that kind of leader, you know your team and you know when people are having a good time, when things are working well. And you know when things aren't and you know when to ask them to do something that you want them to do and when it might be, not be a good day to do that because yeah isn't gonna, you know it's that kind of knowledge that means that people do feel understood and they do feel valued and then when you make decisions to, you're making them together so if you're thinking about things like well-being you're saying to everybody how are we doing what else might we do and you listen to the answers then you don't have to be the kind of person that's got all the solutions do you it's about how you ask the questions in the right way so that you can listen and I think there's a sense you've suggested there of as a leader knowing yourself mm. and 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 knowing how you need to take care of yourself so that you're able to do what you know it is a very stressful job and unless you look after yourself properly and it is those times isn't it like you're saying when you go through something in life that just pushes you a little bit further than you normally used to to being pushed yeah I think I think that's absolutely true I mean I know certainly from my own sort of circumstance that you know I work very hard when everything's kind of going along okay at home then I can balance that but if I'm worried about something else at home then too quickly things get out of balance yeah but if you've got a team around you you know so if you've got a team around you where you can say well, they might ask you and you can say, well, actually, I'm a bit worried about my daughter at the moment or something. You've also got people who will step forward because in a really effective team, it's not all about follow my leader. It's about a leadership team. And at different points, different people are in a stronger position to take the lead on something. And that then is, is incredibly helpful because it's, it's not about saying, you know, um, I've got all the answers. It's about together we've got the answers that we need to find. And if we don't have them yet, we will find them. So you know, then you're not on your own if you've got a difficult time and you can share that with people and they can step forward for a while and you can step back for a bit. And, yeah. on. and asking people on your team how you can help them as well. You know, just Helen Kelly talked in her, uh, when, when I interviewed her about saying, what do you need? You know, just being able to say to someone, okay, how can I help you? What do you need? And responding to that and sometimes like you said it's just listening to someone isn't it it's just listening to someone and and helping them just by doing that i mean sometimes it's interesting there was a, a situation i had with a young member of staff who um she'd lost her mother her mother had died and that had been very difficult for her and then a little girl in her class um her mummy was very ill 
and I knew that this was going to be incredibly difficult for this teacher because all the things were sort of coming back yeah. that she experienced for herself. And I also knew that if I tried to take on being the support for this teacher, that was going to impact on my well-being in a way that wasn't going to be helpful for the school. And fortunately, at that time, I knew someone who was um, a counsellor and I was able to ask her to come in on a Friday. And she met with this teacher every Friday for a number of weeks in complete confidence. And they just talked things through, which meant that I knew that I was kind of feeling good because I was helping that teacher, but I wasn't having to do it myself. The teacher was being supported um, and she had a mechanism whereby she could go away at the end of a week having offloaded things that she might have been worried about during the week. Now, for me, that's, that's about leadership. That's about making decisions that you know will keep the organisation healthy, but also knowing your own limits. And, this, and in this instance, I knew that if I'd sat with her on a Friday night and she told me everything she was worried about, I would have taken that home. Yeah. Worried about that over the weekend. And that, that's, it's so important, isn't it, that you're able to put things in place that, that you look after yourself and you look after your staff as well. I, I think of it in terms of there's, there's so much talk about work-life balance, isn't there? And, and I, I think it's more just life balance if you have all of these things in your life in balance you can cope absolutely perfectly and the listeners will be absolutely sick to death of me talking about when I separated from my husband but that tipped the scales for me everything was balanced but then when that happened I I, I felt a real tip in the scales and there wasn't any balance in my life anymore and that's what pushed me to that you know that was the difference for me between pressure and stress and then it becoming you know I was unable to cope so it is about that life balance it's about having things in your life in balance but understanding when people who are working in your team when the balance for them has just tipped and doing whatever you can to try to get them to get to get the balance back again and there's knowing that that will happen you know you're in a much better place now, I'm guessing. Yes, able, much better, you're able to, yes. able to reflect on what happened. You were able to think, well, I took the best decision that I could at the time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, during this pandemic, that's one of the things that I've been really trying to help people to think about um, because, well, I hope it's helpful. So, for example, you know, the older you get, <laughs> the longer you've been around, <laughs> Or you kind of pick things up and think, yeah, that was helpful to me. So one of the things that, that uh, was helpful to me was um, I remember going to a lecture and sort of learning about how the way the brain works and that in the middle of the night, if you wake up, you're not fully awake. And because you're not fully awake, the part of your brain that reacts to sort of the sort of fight or flight wakes up first, if you like. So that's why you're far more likely to fret about things in the middle of the night because you're not fully consciously working something through and thinking, yeah, but that's probably not going to happen. Mm. You're much more in that kind of, yes, but this could happen. Now, once I knew that, I could kind of tell myself that. Now, that feels like a ridiculous strategy, but actually it really helped me. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, sort of, night time, thinking, yeah, but this is because you're not thinking things properly. <laughs> because your brain's not properly awake yet whereas in the morning when you've had a cup of coffee you'll be able to reason with this better and it yeah. just helps to know that um and I think just reflecting on will I still be worrying about what I'm worrying about now in a month's time or will that have been taken over by something else now what really helped me with that was when I was a leader I kept a, a journal which I was doing because I was being I was part of a research project and I was in this journal, I would reflect, sort of, I'd be thinking about the week ahead. What am I thinking about? What am I worrying about? What's coming up that could be tricky? Um, and then at the following week, I would go back to that and then write what actually happened. And of course, almost always, things haven't worked out as you thought. Typically, you've got through them. They haven't been the disastrous kind of things that you were perhaps dreading. Um, and once you start to do that over a period of time, you sort of realise worrying about something is never really I mean there's, there's a difference between worrying about it and having enough adrenaline to mm. do something well but if it's worry that's debilitating that's no good for anybody so let's try and reduce the times when we are allowing ourselves to think like that because it probably isn't helpful at all in fact it almost certainly isn't it's really interesting that is I, I used to 
do the worrying when I was going to sleep. I could never get to sleep at night because I'd be going over all of the things that I, I had to do. And it's funny when you were saying about waking up in the night, I woke up last night and thought about something that I needed to do this morning and I have no idea what it was now. And it was, it was, it was important. So I'm going to have to rack my brains now to figure out what it was. But I, I had to teach myself not to do that because what I was thinking wasn't helpful. It wasn't going to help me. In the morning, I always then made a list of all the things that I needed to do. And I could just think, okay, I don't need to think about these things now. But as teachers, it's very hard, isn't it? Because there are so many, we're, we're spinning so many plates, especially if we've, we've got a family as well, or, you know, there are all sorts of things going on. It, it, it's just, it's just a difficult job, isn't it? And I think as leaders, we just need to try to create the best conditions for people to work in so that they can be as happy as possible. It's all we can do. And, you know, I wouldn't want you to go away from this thinking, oh, Alison's got it all taped. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, um, I woke up in the night worrying about things and then I came downstairs and I sat at my computer and I wrote a list of all the people that hated me because I thought this is what I was worried about. But then underneath it, I also wrote a list of people who'd been quite supportive. Um, and then I went back to bed because I felt better because I made this list. And when I looked at it the following morning, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but I'm just I'm just being completely honest with you. So I'd written these people that oh, I'm not sure they you know they didn't answer my email. Does that mean they does that mean oh. they don't like me? They don't want to know what's going on. One of the people at the top of the list of people who supported me was the Duke of Edinburgh. Wow. Not because he's my best friend in any way, sense or form, but because he had written that message to teachers at Christmas that he wrote saying that he really supported our profession. And I remember thinking, well, that's amazing that he's done that. And then I just kind of blanked it out. And then when I was writing this list in the middle of the night, I thought, well, actually, he didn't ignore my emails and he wrote a list for teachers. So he must think I'm all right. So <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> it's so reassuring. It will be so reassuring for listeners to hear you say that, because I know there is so much when I said that I was doing this podcast, there's so much respect and admiration out there for you. And, you, you know, you provide so much positive inspiration, but it's so good for people to hear, oh, thank goodness, it's not just me that thinks in that way. I'm, I'm about to um, start a group coaching program for women leaders in schools. And one of the sessions that I'm going to do is about how, how we sometimes we're our own worst enemy. You know, what things do we do that get in our own way? And how can we stop doing those things? Because sometimes we do, we, we put ourselves in those situations, don't we, that, that create a negative spiral. And if we can just turn our thinking and change our thinking around, like you're saying, from the list of people who don't like me, create a list of people who do. Or the person, I was coaching um, a client yesterday and she'd suffered from COVID and she'd been sent some bunches of flowers. So she'd taken photographs of the bunches of flowers so that if ever she was thinking or worrying that people didn't like her or she'd said no to somebody, which was a challenge, go off and say no to people. She could look at the flowers and say, no, people do appreciate me and people do care about me. It makes a difference, doesn't it? It totally does. I mean, I think, I think being a teacher, what's brilliant about being a teacher is that the youngsters that you work with are so forgiving. I mean, every day is a new day. And if you're thinking about things through the lens of what can I do to make things better for them, then almost always you're going to make the right decision because, you know, that's why you came into the job. And whenever I was trying to work out what we should, what we should do in a certain situation in school, you would come back to what's the best thing for the children. And almost always that was the right thing so you know to give that example to go back to that example I gave right at the beginning of the teacher who has the pile of books or goes and stands and watches that football actually even if you can only be there for 10 minutes if you know that's going to be really important to that child not only will it make that child feel better because they'll look up and notice you're there but it will give you that kind of, of joy in your heart that you've done it and that's what will sustain you beyond the wretched market. Exactly. It's the joy. Andy Buck was talking about what nourishes, you know, mm. do what nourishes you. Do Absolutely. those things. He was talking about, you know, arranging a school ski trip and going on a school ski trip, which he did as a head teacher. But it's about just finding those things in the day and doing those things that actually bring you joy mm. and yeah. and fulfilment, isn't it? It absolutely is. It yeah. absolutely is. But I mean, it is impossible. The job's impossible. So, you know, 
but it can be joyfully impossible. It doesn't have to be um, tearfully impossible. Joyfully impossible. What a great oxymoron to finish the interview with. <laughs> Joyfully impossible. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm mindful. I hadn't even looked at the time and I'm mindful that you've, you've been so generous with your time sharing so many uh, insightful ideas it's been quite inspirational actually so thank you so much if um if people want to join the chartered college how do they go about doing that it's chartered.college that's our website and um you can just join there it's free for students it's one pound 88 a month for new newly qualified teachers and it's three pound 75 a month for everybody else that is an absolute bargain and i would i would recommend everybody get get on the website and and sign up and if people want to find out more about you um or they want to see all your inspirational posts on twitter where where do they find you uh well on twitter i'm at alison m peacock and um i don't have a separate website or anything just go to the chartered college and uh, there i am brilliant uh, it's been lovely talking to you today. thank you so much i, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it and I know that the listeners are really excited to listen to this episode um so thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day thank you bye just want to reiterate my thanks to Dame Alison Peacock for that fantastic interview I felt like a bit of a fangirl actually talking to someone who I really admire I've been watching, um, I've been reading her posts on Twitter religiously um, and I think she's just doing brilliant, brilliant things for the teaching profession. So thank you very much, Dame Alison. You can tell in everything that she says as well that she really cares so much about teachers and teaching. And I love the idea that she referred to as metaphorically putting your arms around someone. And she speaks about teaching, about leadership and about schools with such passion and compassion. And you can tell that she really does care about what she does. Um, one of the other things that she talked about was about enabling as opposed to blaming that I thought was a really important point to reiterate that, uh, that Dame Allison made. Um, and this idea of genuinely authentically being there for people so not just paying lip service to, to caring about people to actually caring about them and being authentic in your care for them and one of the things she said was not you know not just smiling and nodding at someone on a corridor actually engage with them take the time to listen to them and she she used three words she used a phrase and she taught she said listen learn and share and I think that is the key to really effective leadership. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I mentioned at the start uh, the group coaching programme that I'm doing for women leaders. And, I, and I'm afraid to say that the programme is full. But if this is something you would be interested in taking part in in the future, please do drop me a line. You can get in touch with me via the website at www.transformeducationcoach.com. You can find me on Twitter, the We Lead Well uh, Twitter page that I have. You can find me on Facebook. I have a We Lead Well group. So if you want to get in touch with me, do so via one of those social media platforms. And... I would really love it if you could join the Facebook group. It would be really nice to have a conversation with you, find out some of your, your views and your opinions. So do join the Facebook group. This week, I've interviewed Drew Povey. So I'm really excited to let you know that that show will be coming out imminently. And I've also done an interview with John Thompson, and that interview will also be out soon. So there is lots to look forward to. Thank you so much for listening today. I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Take care of yourself, take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance.